Hosea chapter 11, excuse me, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness and with bands of love. I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion, and when he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria, and I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. So this morning we are, we are going to be talking about God's steadfast love. And before we dive in, I'm, I want to introduce myself. I'm Zach Douglas. I'm the student ministries director here at Country Oaks, and it's my honor to preach this morning to you. God's steadfast love is prevalent throughout the entire book of Hosea. It's a mix of God's love for his people and, and his punishment for their sin. And Israel has gotten to this point because they weren't vigilant in their sin. They weren't seeing their sin and turning from it. It's a lot like lawn care. Lawn care is, it requires vigilance and discipline. When we bought our house in town, I looked on Google Maps, and it had this, this lawn, just a green lawn, all the way across around the house. We're on a corner, so there's a lot of uh, space for a lawn. And then the house we actually showed up to, you know, like after Google drove through like seven years ago, uh, it was a mix of weeds and mostly just open dirt. What happened was, over the years, the previous owner had stopped caring for the lawn. When he first bought the house, apparently it had a nice lawn and a garden. But over the years, lawn care just wasn't that important. Uh, the sprinkler system broke, and he didn't care to fix it. Weeds started popping up around the lawn, and and they weren't taken care of, and eventually it was clear that the work was not worth the attention. And like I said, now it's just dirt and weeds and a little bit of grass. It's kind of green, mostly brown, like everything in Tatchby. But what it shows is that lawn care, what I've learned, is that lawn care requires vigilance. Even we have an area that's a fire pit area, and it's just dirt. And even dirt care requires vigilance because weeds are so... uh, they're just everywhere. They can grow anywhere. Life does truly find a way. But it's also that same way with every single household chore. And I'm sure my parents are laughing while they watch this back up in Sacramento uh, because I was not vigilant or disciplined in my chores. My room had a carpet of dirty clothes growing up. Uh, but cleaning, laundry, dishes, homework, work in our job, jobs all requires vigilance. All requires discipline, because without it, the house becomes a mess, the lawn is dead and covered in weeds, the dishes are piled up in the sink and might start to stink, Uh, and you have your, and at the end of the week, if you don't do your laundry, you have your least favorite clothes to wear, and the laundry pile is huge. I saw a video one time of a guy who was complaining about something that said to him, that someone had said to him, and he was wearing this pineapple shirt, and he was at a coffee shop, and the person was like, oh, laundry day? (laughs) And his complaint was that he had just done laundry and was wearing his favorite shirt. But if we don't, if we aren't vigilant and disciplined in our lives, things begin to unravel. 
things begin to not look the way that they were meant to be. And this truth is also a truth in our, in our fight against sin. Today it's common to see big-name celebrity pastors or, or big Christian writers fall into sin. But with these falls, it's not just one singular moment that they were living their life well-disciplined in their fight against sin, and suddenly they fell. I say this to our high schoolers all the time. Every great fall starts with one single bad decision. One moment of giving into sin. Just a couple of decisions turn you from the path of the straight and narrow, and you're on the path of sinfulness. Great Christians' heroes don't just fall. We also see this in Scripture. The heroes of the Bible didn't just suddenly fall into sin. When David committed his sin with Bathsheba, it wasn't just a sudden, random moment. There were many small decisions, seemingly small decisions, that led to that moment. Even before his decision to stay home from fighting wars when he was supposed to be out and fighting in battle, that wasn't the single decision. If you go back even farther, we see that David had multiple wives. In 1 Chronicles 3, it says that he had at least seven wives. That may have been the moment that he started to step into the mindset where what he did with Bathsheba was okay to him. This culturally accepted sin of, of polygamy opened the door to more sin, culminating with his sin with Bathsheba. And from that point on, Israel's kings were never the same. From that moment on, David's kingly rule was marked by sin and tragedy. His own sons turned against him. And then we see Solomon. Solomon was wise, more wise than anyone else in the entire world. But he had thousands and hundreds of wives and concubines. And then from Solomon, it is just a steep drop-off. Every king after Solomon gets worse and worse and worse culminating in, in Ahab and Jezebel, who even go, far, go as far to declare an idol, a pagan god, as the national deity of Israel. All of this started because of the standard that David set. And that brings us to, this, to the context for the book of Hosea and really all of the prophets. Israel is on the verge of being destroyed and thrown into exile because of their sin. Their leaders set a standard of sinfulness and idolatry that the rest of the people gave into. In Hosea 1.1, we get the historical context for what's going on. We see that specific kings in Israel are ruling. It's the time when Israel is split because of a civil war. There's two kingdoms, the northern kingdom, which is called Ephraim at times in, in Hosea and the southern kingdom of Judah. And it's toward, this book comes up towards the end of the reign of Israel's kings, just before captivity in Assyria and Babylon. Since, the, since David and Saul took over as kings, this is the most turbulent time in Israel. As far as the narrative for Hosea goes, it's called, in what we see in Hosea is his marriage is called to be a, a illustration for God's relationship with Israel. Hosea is called to marry an unfaithful woman, Gomer. They marry, they have kids together, and all of their kids are given prophetic names that, um, that how God feels towards Israel. He has one kid whose name's translation is not my people because Israel is no longer acting like God's people. There's another kid whose name is uh, No Mercy because God is not going to show mercy on Israel because of their sin. Eventually, Gomer leaves, cheats on, on Hosea, and God tells Hosea to redeem her from her debts and restore their relationship. Gomer had gotten into a place where she owed money to people, and Hosea goes, pays her debts, and takes her back in as, as his wife. This is meant to symbolize 
what Israel, or what God is going to do with Israel. By now, by the time we get to Hosea 11, though, Hosea has warned the people of Israel over and over and over again of what is going to come if they don't repent. At times it feels like a lawyer standing before a, a convicted felon accusing them of their sin. God is telling them over and over, you have lied, you have cheated, you have committed idolatry, and I'm turning from you. He declares punishment over and over again, repeatedly through dynamic imagery and symbolism. But we also see nostalgia from God. We see God's love for his people. That's what I love about the book of Hosea, is we see God's raw emotion and his love that he has for a people that don't love him back. Hosea has all of this, Hosea 11 has all of this along with hope. Hosea 11, chapter 1, or uh, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. These are the words of a grieving father. How can God claim to be Israel's father? Because in Exodus 4, verses 22 to 23, God tells Pharaoh that Israel is his firstborn son. And if he doesn't release his... Israel, his firstborn son, God is going to kill Pharaoh's firstborn. God has chosen Israel as his people. He looks at them like a father looks on on a child. It's very reminiscent of the prodigal son parable in Luke. And from the moment that God calls Israel out of Egypt, pulls Israel out of Egypt, he declares them to be his children. It is a parent and child relationship. And he has shown them the love of a father. And it comes back to the Exodus because this was the foundational moment in Israel's history. It's the first time God expressed his love for this nation. Sure, he had told Abraham that he would choose his, that he had chosen Abraham and his offspring as his people. But this was tangible evidence of God's love for this people. In Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, God says, It is not because, of, because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his, his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Lord has brought you out, of, out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. This Israel is God's chosen people. They have tangible evidence of his love for them. And what he's doing is is he's reminiscing on the early days. He's looking back and remembering when Israel and, and God were in seemingly right relationship. They were the best of times, but they were also, as the saying goes, the worst of times. In verse 2, God continues. He says, the more they were called, the more Israel was called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. As God reminisces, he sees them pulling away. He isn't looking at at his history with Israel with rose-colored glasses. He sees their sin. Because pretty much as soon as he called them out of Egypt... They dove straight into sin. Moses was on Mount Sinai, and Israel started to doubt God. I mean, they'd seen him, they'd seen him part the sea, they'd seen him cover the sea on, on Pharaoh, and pull them out of the most powerful nation in the world. But they doubted God. <clears throat> the more they were <clears throat> excuse me, the more they were called the more they went away. And they went away to other gods. They went to Baal, who is the god of Canaan. He's the pagan god that the Canaanites worshipped, and they continued to go to him. But even before that, they made a god of their own. They made the golden calf, and Aaron said, Israel, this is the god, this golden calf, is the god who pulled you out of Egypt. They went to Baal, they went to other gods, 
and they made sacrifices to other idols other than the Lord who took them out of Egypt. Throughout Judges, we see them go again and again and again to Baal. It is just a cycle of idolatry and I mean, as, as it says over and over again in Judges, Israel did whatever the heck they wanted, what was right in their own eyes. Their response to God's call, even back after the Exodus, in the book of Exodus, was pulling away from God. They sought other idols, and their sacrifices and offerings were because they were seeking blessings from other idols. They wanted fertility. They wanted their agriculture and their harvest to be beneficial. They didn't trust that God could do it. They were also showing thankfulness to their other gods. They were saying all of the blessings that they had, their success in military battle, their success in agriculture was because of these gods other than Yahweh. God wasn't looking through rose-colored glasses at his relationship with Israel. They were never consistently content with him. But God had blessed the people of Israel because at times they were adhering to the covenant. He was upholding his end of the covenant in his blessings. In Deuteronomy 28, we see that God promises blessings on agriculture, fertility, health, wealth, weather, uh, military strength, marriages. He promises all of these blessings if Israel just adheres to the covenant. But there's also curses if they were to disobey. And all of the blessings that God would give them would be cursed if they disobeyed, if they turned to other gods, if they broke the covenant. Their agriculture, their fertility, their health, the weather, military strength, marriages, even their mental state would be cursed if they didn't follow God. It's what Nathan preached on last week in Romans 1, that God will turn us over to our sin that he will harden our hearts against him, that he will keep us in darkness if we don't continue to seek him. The result of a darkened mind is a hardened heart, and that's what we see in Israel. Hosea is God's words to a people who were experiencing the wrath of God. They were in the midst of it. God blessed them with everything but they couldn't hold up their end of the covenant. And their sin is blatantly explained in Hosea. In Hosea 4.1, God says that there is no steadfast love or knowledge of God in the land. Isaiah chapter 2 describes Israel as a land filled with idols. So it's understandable that God would show wrath to this people. But it was a people that he loved. So Hosea 11.2 ends by saying they kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. They kept saying thank you to these pagan gods. But in verse 3 he continues, Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. It's this powerful imagery of parenting, of an offended, heartbroken father saying, I taught you this, Israel. I was the one who led you in holiness. I taught you what it meant to live in holiness, in right relationship with me. I gave you these blessings. I was the one who expanded your borders. I was the one who fought against the Midianites and the Philistines. But you're thanking these Baals. You're turning to other idols. It was I who did this, Israel, not Baal. And he shows it through this illustration of a father teaching a child to walk. I'm not a father yet. I will be in November. So like any good millennial, I had to watch a video of what this looked like. And what we see is, is the father's step leaning down and holding their children's arms to help them to walk. It's a father bending down to lift up his child's arms who is not strong enough yet to do this on his own. It was God who taught them everything, taught them how to live as his people, really taught them how to live 
as a good and holy nation. He was the one who taught them holiness. He provided for them. He healed them and cared for them. But like God says, they did not know that he healed them. They blinded themselves and refused to believe it. Israel was blind to all that God did. Pretty much from the start, they doubted him. And before we start to think so poorly of Israel, we need to realize that we do the same thing. We may not equate it to some pagan statue that's in our living room, but we equate it to ourselves. We say, look what I did. Look at how I was successful in this. Look at the skills that I have that led me to this success. We sometimes refuse to recognize God's blessings in our lives. Idolatrous worship defines Israel's sins, and it shows that they were no better than anyone else, just like Deuteronomy 7 says. God didn't choose them because they were especially faithful to him. He chose them because they weren't. The apostasy of Hosea's generation was simply a continuation of what they had began as early as the Exodus. It wasn't just one singular moment of Israel just suddenly giving into idolatry. It was moments of decisions throughout their history that led to God punishing them for their sin. But God doesn't just stop with this fatherly illustration. He continues on with with a farmer and and an ox or a donkey. He says, I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. He paints this imagery of a loving farmer who cares for his animals. Yes, God required certain things and certain ways for Israel to live, But he did it with cords of kindness. When they strayed, he didn't just wipe them out and start over. Instead, he led them back to the path that they were supposed to be on, gently and softly. He also bends down to feed them, which means that he had to remove the the bit from the mouth, which was a burden on them, in order to bless them. He helped them to eat more comfortably is what this illustration is saying. He dealt gently with them in spite of their sin. Even though they were sinning, he was still gentle and patient with them. We see this in in the manna in the wilderness. When God provides manna for Israel, they, they say it's not good enough, they don't listen to him, but he still continues to give it to them. He gives them manna and quail. He provides for them when they can't provide for themselves. But by giving into idolatry, they're saying that God didn't do anything for them. It was someone else. It was Baal. It was the pagan gods of their culture. So God has to punish them. In his holiness and justice, he has to punish them for their sin. In verse 5, it says, They shall not return to the land of Egypt, to a land that they knew. But Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to to return to me. He's saying that this slavery will be far worse than the last. It'll be far worse than in Egypt, because in Egypt, they didn't know what it meant to be their own people. They didn't know what it meant to have freedom. They were oppressed because they took up so much of the population, and Pharaoh was like, that is dangerous. We're going, to have to, we're going to have to squash that and control that. They weren't really prosperous on their own before Egyptian slavery. And they also weren't thrown into slavery after having their land absolutely decimated by a foreign nation. Assyria would be far worse than Egypt because they'd been given their own land by God himself. They'd experienced autonomy and prosperity. They've had independence, but they refused to give God the credit that he deserved. The exile is a true reversal of the exodus. 
all the blessings that they received after the Exodus would be overturned and taken away from them. The land would be gone. They'd be pulled from the land into a different country. God is saying, you don't want me as your Lord? Here's life without me. Here's life serving someone else who won't give you anything. Life without God is described in verse 6. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, and devour them because of their own counsels. Literally, it's saying that a sword will whirl about in the cities of Israel, destroying everything in its path like a hot knife through butter. Their gates would be deserted and destroyed. Any plans for survival would be frustrated. They had nowhere to go and no way to fight back. Even worse, at one point in Hosea, God says that he will be on the side of their enemies. The one who was, a, was the key factor in their battles has turned against them. And they have no reason for hope. This slavery will be, will be worse because they will be ravaged, their cities destroyed, the temple destroyed, the people utterly wiped out because they were bent on turning away from him. Verse 7 says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. The slavery is worse because it is their fault. In Egypt, it was not a punishment. Like I said, Pharaoh just saw the danger of having this large people group and punished them for it. But this slavery is a direct result of God's punishment. This time, they could have avoided all of this. God told them how from the start, how they were to live as his people. But God would not return their call for deliverance in the midst of this first battle. They don't recognize him truly as the Most High. He's just another one of their gods. Sure, they'll call out to him, but they aren't exclusively calling out to him. They haven't repented and turned away from their sin, and they're not worshiping God in spirit and in truth. They were not vigilant in their fight against sin, and sin infected every aspect of their nation. Instead, they were complacent in their sin. And this serves as a warning to us, a warning against complacency, a warning to be vigilant and disciplined in fighting against sin. And in our fight against sin, it requires not just knowing that we're fighting sin, but knowing how we are to fight sin. We can't just fight blindly. We can't just go into this battle without knowing our opponent. In almost every single sport, except maybe golf, you have to know your opponent. I guess in golf, you might be your own worst enemy. Um, I don't golf, so sorry. But preparation in sports allows you to, to play better and hopefully win. It gives you a better advantage. You know their moves, you know their game plan, you know what they're good at, what they're not good at, and you can use the, that knowledge to fight against your opponent. We can't go in blind in our knowledge against, or in our, in our fight against sin. We have to know sin. We can't be complacent in it. Because if we aren't fighting sin, it will consume us. It requires vigilance and discipline. Sin is all-encompassing. And when we understand that, when we understand that it's like weeds in a lawn, that it will continue to grow unless we fight against it, it helps us and encourages us to fight all the better. And part of fighting sin is recognizing that sin is not just an external thing, but it's internal. Our fight against sin is within us. We can't just modify our behavior and say, oh, I'm not going to lie anymore. I'm not going to... I mean, I'm assuming most of us in this room haven't murdered someone, but that doesn't mean, as Jesus says that we aren't murdering people with our hearts and our anger and our hatred. We can't just modify our behavior, but we have to change our hearts. We have to work on the desires within us. And one level, 
we can give up pornography and never turn to that sin again. But if we don't address, address the lust in our hearts, then we're still committing that same sin. It might not be as egregious on the surface, but it's still going on within us. We have to know our propensity for sin, what sins tend to entice us more, what temptations we're more likely to give into. Israel clearly did not. They did not address the idolatry that was in their lives. They did not address their propensity to turn away from God. At one point, I mean, they even lose their copies of the Torah. They don't turn to God's word, and it clearly affects them because they, one king, King Josiah, finds it in the temple. I imagine it was all dusty and, cob, and covered in cobwebs. Israel did not realize their propensity to turn from God. They didn't look at their history and see that they were riddled with sin. John Owen says that our enemy is not only upon you, your enemy is not only upon you, but is in you also. We have to realize that our enemy is within us. Israel was their own worst enemy. And we are the same way. We are our own worst enemies. James recognizes this in James chapter 1, verses 14 to 16, or to 15. He says, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's not by the desires of someone else. It's not by the desires of some outside entity. But it is our own desires that lure and tempt us. Our sin uses our own desires against us. Taking our affections away from God and from godliness. And he continues on in verse 15 and says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown brings forth death. Our desires conceive and give birth to sin. When we don't watch our desires closely, sin always comes. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. The only thing that sin brings forth is death. Sure, it might bring some sort of gratification for a time. It might bring some sort of earthly happiness But in the end, it always leads to death. Just look at the story of David. David's sin led directly to death. All big falls start with a slow drift, slightly drifting off the straight and narrow. It's like when you're driving that we have to have our hands on the wheel, because if we don't, unless you have a Tesla, your car starts to drift into the other lane. If we don't have our hands on the wheel, we start to drift into sin. We must stop our sins at our desires and at our hearts. And we must replace that sinful desire for a godly one. And what's so crazy about sin is that most of these desires have a righteous root at the core. At the core of them, they are desires that are supposed to be used for glorifying God. In laziness, the ultimate desire is for comfort and rest, which is a good desire that God has given us. We see that God, after he works in creation, rests. When the work is done, rest is beneficial. But sin twists it, and our laziness and our comfort and our rest become the highest priority And the work doesn't get done. And eventually either we have to scramble and and throw things together in order to get the work done. I used to kind of be proud of my procrastination because I felt like I worked better under stress. Might be the biggest lie I've ever told myself. But that's the lie that we tell ourselves. Sexual desire, that's a good thing that God intended for marriage, but we have twisted it to... I mean, we can see how that's been twisted in our culture today. Or even 
work, a desire to do work and complete work can be twisted so that be, that becomes the primary thing and we ignore every, everything else in our lives because we're workaholics. Doing work and being successful is a good desire. In Genesis 2, we see that God created man to work. The garden wasn't just Adam and Eve sitting in hammocks all day enjoying the shade. It was them working and taking care of the land. We were intended for work, but work has its rightful place. In our fight against sin, we are fighting against our own flesh, literally fighting our own desires. And that might seem hopeless. We're fighting against ourselves, and without God, that is a hopeless fight. This fight requires that we turn to God. And that's what Hosea shows us in the rest of this chapter. Verse 8, God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma and Zeboim? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. This is... This is describing a father who's at his wit's end with his son. One commentator calls it distraught self-questioning and says, while accepting the fact that God transcends our metaphors and that theological doctrines about the impassibility and foreknowledge of God should never be jettisoned, basically saying that, that God, while it seems like, like we're quick to say like, Oh, God's not changing his mind because he's really not. What he's saying is that ultimately we should look at these texts and see this raw emotions. Texts such as this should be allowed to speak to us in the power of their raw emotion. It is precisely in texts such as this that the love of God becomes a vivid reality and not a barren abstraction. We see the, the raw emotion of God. It's not just this equation that God has to show his love, but we see that God has true love for this people. He's not just strictly, I mean, he is strictly adhering to his plan, but he's showing us how he wrestles with sin or with with this justice. It pains him to cause this wrath that is 100% justified. The justice of God seems to demand a Sodom-like destruction, but the tender heart of God seeks another way. Adma and Zeboim were neighboring countries or, or people groups to Sodom and Gomorrah. They were decimated, just like Sodom and Gomorrah. They were allies with them, and God destroyed them along with Sodom and Gomorrah. In Deuteronomy 29:23, it says, the whole land burned out with brimstone and salt, nothing sown and nothing growing, where no plant can sprout. An overthrow like that of Sodom and Gomorrah, Adma and Zeboim, which the Lord overthrew in his anger and wrath. This is the punishment that Israel deserved. They were as bad as the most wicked nations in their, in their history. It'd be like comparing our nation to Nazi Germany. That's what this comparison was like to Israel. All of Israel deserved this punishment. We can't be blind to this fact. They deserved brimstone and fire and salt raining down on them because of their, they broke the covenant that they agreed to. God told told them that he would do this to them. They agreed to these consequences. But in his love and his mercy, God says he won't do that. We clearly see God expressing this love. He's saying, how can I give you up? How can I destroy you if you are my firstborn son? It's the love displayed in the parable of the prodigal son. The son, after he says to his father, you know what, I I wish you were dead. I wish I had my inheritance and leaves and squanders all that money, when he comes back, the father doesn't just ignore him or even punish him. The father embraces him 
as his son, which he is. God's love is revealed in these two questions. How can I destroy you? How can I give you up? At the heart of this is God's steadfast love. It's not a fleeting love. At one point, God calls Israel's love for him the morning dew that it looks refreshing, it, it looks beneficial, but by the heat of the day, it is gone. God's love is not like that. It is steadfast. It continues on. The point is clear <clears throat> that Israel and God have been irreconcilably estranged. Their relationship cannot be returned to the way that it was. Israel has made it clear that they do not want God, but God is still in his mercy willing to extend his love to them. He says, I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man. He says that he won't decimate them like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will be punished because that's what his justice requires, because that is discipline for their sin. But he will still keep them. Instead of wiping out this people group, they go into exile, and a, a holy root, a remnant is promised that will eventually return to the people, to the land, to Israel. And at the core of this, God's reasoning for this he says is, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. God is not like us. He will not take his anger to its fullest extent, but instead will show mercy on this people. He will be kind to them. He is utterly distinct from them in his holiness. He doesn't act out of anger and mean and vindictive waves. He's both a God who shows strong emotion but he is not ruled by sinful emotion like us. He will not simply unleash his wrath in uncontrollable anger. But what we see is God will, yes, extend his wrath, but he will also pull it back in mercy. Sometimes we only see God's holiness and his purity from sin, but we don't extend it to his other attributes. We see his holiness in his love for this people, his love for us. We see his holiness also, like here, in his anger. It's not an uncontrollable anger, but it is controlled. He doesn't have uncontrollable emotion, and his reactions are not tainted by sin. In his loving mercy, God disciplines this people, but he doesn't punish them to the fullest extent of the covenant agreement, the covenant that Israel agreed to. He does not come in uncontrollable anger and wrath, but he comes in justice, mercy, and love. Doesn't mean Israel won't face punishment, but it means that he won't absolutely destroy them. One commentator says this, he says, even when his chosen people turn against him, God's love remains. The same is not true for man. Our renewal in Christ, though, gives us the motivation, strength, and right heart to act in similar ways. And we see this acted out in the next two verses. It says, They shall go up, they shall go after the Lord. He will roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt and like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. God is often described with the ferocity of a lion, but instead of crushing Israel, he is restoring Israel. Instead of ravaging the, the people like a lion ravages its prey, he is protecting them. That's why C.S. Lewis uses Aslan the lion as an image for God. He is not safe, but that's good for us because God loves us. Instead of crushing Israel, he's restoring it. It's this disorienting image of a lion roaring and birds coming to it rather than fleeing. In The Lion King, when we see a lion roar the movie, the birds start to fly away from it, right? Animals flee from the lion. 
but God is a lion to which animals come to. And the point is that there will be a new exodus. God will deliver again his people from their enemies and return them to the promised land. In Hosea 7 verse 11, there, Israel is described as a silly dove flittering, flittering to, and flo, to and fro, flying back and forth with no sense and direction. They're seeking Assyria, Egypt, but all other gods, everyone pretty much except for God. But here, they fly in a specific direction. They fly directly to Yahweh. God is telling them he will call them out of exile. They won't be stranded in Assyria and Babylon forever, but his true children will return to him. He will return them to their homes. It won't be anything that they did. We see this in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Ezra opens up, this is the story of Israel coming back to the land, and it says that God stirred up in the heart of the king of Persia to return the people back to their land. Israel didn't beg and plead for it, but God changed the Persian king's heart to return the people back. In this future, Israel will do what they should have done, at least for a time. They will have a new heart that desires to pursue the Lord. And instead of destroying them, God chastises them and disciplines them until they learn to fear and love them. And only then they, will they return to their homes. What this shows us is that our fight against sin requires God's steadfast love. It's a future our fight against sin is based on a future hope that is founded upon God's love, and it hinges on God's love. And this love results in his holy love for his people. We see him restoring them to the land. God carried out what's described here. In his love for his people, God restores them. And out of his love for creation, God restores us. He fulfills his promise from Genesis 3.15 that an offspring of, Ab of Adam will crush the serpent's head. John 3.16 tells us that because God so loved the world, he sent Jesus, that we might have life. Romans 5.8 says that Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Jesus didn't die for us because we turned away from our sin, but he died for us so that we could turn away from our sin. In John 10, 27 to 29, Jesus tells us that this love secures us for eternity in salvation. While sin makes us unworthy of God, it doesn't mean that we can't be saved by God because of God's steadfast love. And it's out of this love that God offers us a new heart. In Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 30 to 32, it says this, Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God, to repent and turn from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions that you have committed, and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? God is saying that once they repent, he will give them a new heart and a new spirit. He also says in verse 32, I have no desire in the death of anyone, declares the Lord, so turn and live. God desires that people would turn to him. Out of his love, he desires to give us a new heart and a new spirit within us. Our only hope from the punish, punishment of and in the fight against sin is God's love most displayed in Jesus Christ. Our only hope in turning from sin is repentance and faith that we can trust that Jesus did the work that was required for our salvation. Repentance and faith are the only way that we can be saved. And God desires that every single one of us be saved. He desires for all of us to repent and believe and turn from the wrath that is facing us. God desires to restore people to righteousness. 
So how on earth do we fight sin if it's rooted in our desires? We fight sin because God has equipped us to do so in his love and in his mercy. Upon repentance and faith in Christ, we are given a new heart. We are given the right tools to fight against sin. Before Christ, we may have had some desire to turn from our sin, but we were never we never had the right the right tools or even the right motivation to turn against sin. The law shows us our sinfulness and our need to turn from sin. And in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, we are given the Holy Spirit that allows us to turn from sin with right motivation. His law, the Bible, is our guide in fighting against sin. 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 says that all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Because of God's word, we can fight against sin. We use God's word in our fight against sin, and if we aren't in God's word, we are fighting in a way that is not efficient. We're not fighting rightly against our sin. Hosea 11 is a passage that is filled with hope in the midst of promised judgment. Believers, this is a call for us to pick up the fight against sin, to pick up vigilance and discipline, because as John Owen says, if we aren't killing sin, sin will be killing us. We cannot be caught sleeping and if we aren't moving forward, we are moving backwards. For unbelievers, this is a call to respond to God, to seek salvation from the coming wrath, the salvation that is only found in God. And without the steadfast love of God, our fight against sin is hopeless. We cannot be saved from sin without it, and we can't fight against sin without it. For Israel, this call, this called vigilance and running to God fell on deaf ears. We can't let that happen to us. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word that calls us to fight against sin. Thank you for your steadfast love that allows us to be vigilant in our fight against sin. I pray that we would take up this call and return to you, repent from our sin, and seek after salvation that can only come from you. Thank you for who you are and how you have revealed yourself to us. In Jesus' name, amen.